0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We have a delicious show for you this week because my first guest is Kaylani Palmisano. She is the Emmy Award winning host of Check, Please, Philly which is a wonderful show on public television. Uh, She also hosts Delish Story. I hope I'm pronouncing that right for W-H-Y-Y. It's a made-up word, right? It's delicious and story together. Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Kehlani.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. So is it Kalish story or Delish Kalish story? <laughs> delish story, you got it. I mean, it's it's it is it's delicious and history kind of put together. But there are other stories involved. Like we dip our toes into science and and culture of cuisine.
0: Wow. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment, but we have to start with congratulations. On October 13th, Check Please Philly is coming back for its second season. So many congratulations. Thank you so much. For those of our listeners who don't know anything about Philadelphia cuisine beyond cheesesteaks, and we can always talk cheesesteaks, what makes it unique? Uh well, okay. So
1: the The show Check, Please, it exists in a few other cities. It started in Chicago. Um, It popped up in D.C. There's one in San Francisco Bay Area that's really popular. But Check, Please, Philly explores the dining scene of Philadelphia through the eyes of locals. So the show is I'm the host and three guests come on. Each person picks their favorite restaurant places that they're really, really enthusiastic and passionate about sharing with our viewers. And then each person tries those restaurants, and then we discuss them on the show. And I have gotten to see just how much Philadelphia has to offer beyond cheesesteaks and hoagies through this program. Though we do those things very well, uh, we do have... A lot of diversity in our dining scene. We have excellent Ethiopian food, incredible, Mexi- incredible Mexican food, um, and and also nuanced foods. We have people that hyper focus on like southwestern Thai food. We have people that have Laotian cuisine as well, Vietnamese hmm. cuisine. So it's it's a uh, it's a wide gamut of culinary experiences to the point where I feel spoiled that like. I can go and travel the world and come back to Philadelphia and find food from people who have come from those places. They did a really good job of keeping all of their traditions really intact, so that you can right. have, I, I like, for lack of a better term, authentic. Like you can have a really authentic uh-huh. experience.
0: Well, I was gonna uh, you. You've kind of somewhat answered my second question, which was going to be: Are these Different types of foods in Philly because you have large populations of, for example, in Washington, D.C. I think that when I think Washington, D.C. dining, dining, I think Ethiopian food because they have one of the largest African and Ethiopian Communities outside of Ethiopia itself, which uh, you know, the competition makes Ethiopian food there particularly good. Right. Uh, I guess hoagies probably came out of an Italian tradition, and you had a lot of Italians moving, yeah, uh, to yeah. Philadelphia in I don't know how many generations ago. So, how have the and I hope this isn't too area, complex a question, but how have the immigration patterns shaped Philadelphia food? I mean, you can't talk about the Philadelphia dining scene
1: without talking about the waves of immigration that we've had over the decades and even over the centuries, really. Um Philadelphia has always been really, really welcoming to different um, refugee communities, to different waves of immigration. And that's why you have these pockets like people move to like we have what what we call like a little Vietnam. And we have like actually we do call it a little West Africa um, in West Philly, Uh, like these pockets of these communities that come to Philadelphia and they just add like a layer like I think a really great example is if you go out to West Philadelphia and I like to say that you can actually just see the layers of history uh and each layer is so well intact but it comes together in a thing that can only be described as West Philadelphia so yeah that's why uh like we've always been really welcoming to immigrant communities as a city huh. and and with that comes just incredible incredible food because they've they've been able to keep their traditions intact which is amazing
0: yeah no absolutely well i got to ask you about the most famous philly food which is the cheesesteak many years ago when i was working for budget travel magazine I made myself a guinea pig, and over the course of a day and a half, I tried to taste all of the top cheesesteak in Philadelphia. I think I felt like death for about a week after that. <laughs> it was it was rough. That was a lot of meat and cheese. And I can't remember which one I picked as the best. Is there a best now, or do you get kicked out of Philadelphia for oh. revealing that?
1: <laughs> I Uh, We every few years we go through waves of uh, different publications asking people to vote for their favorites or different culinary experts coming in and declaring like best of best cheesesteaks. And um, but speaking to all of those immigrant communities that have come, there's been all of these really interesting variations of the cheesesteak. I think a few I think a few years ago. Um, this place called Saad's Halal out in, again, West Philly. Uh, He had the best cheesesteak, and he was so proud of it. He was a Lebanese immigrant. He's like the – we credit him as the person who brought halal food to Philadelphia because at the time huh. when he had opened up, it was originally a food truck, and then he was able to get a brick and mortar. No one in Philadelphia was really doing halal. So not only did he prepare halal food for the Muslim community, he also – was actually butchering the animals within the halal tradition to keep everything halal. Mm. Uh, But his cheesesteak was, is very, very good. Highly recommend going out to West Philly, trying sods halal. But then there's other fun things too. You can find cheesesteak bao buns. You can find (laughs) cheesesteak spring rolls. Like people are really having fun playing with uh the local food and then of course there's really good vegan versions of it too people using vegan, yeah yeah they they um they use mushrooms and seitan and and like they really make it taste like like a cheesesteak and and it's funny because um i didn't i didn't used to eat too many cheesesteaks growing up even though this is like i lived this in this region my entire life but recently i feel like you can go to a place and there's some kind of wild version like a barbecue cheesesteak or something crazy <laughs> and it's like oh you know what i'm going to try that and it's just an authentically good sandwich without the um the touristiness of it
0: yeah yeah how crazy that's great well beyond philly you are a well-known food and travel writer and you you explore as you said at the beginning Different science and history stories involving food on the series Delish Story, yes. which is with WHYY. It's shorter videos, or actually, some of them were fairly lengthy. I watched a fascinating one you did on when a, will you call it the champagne of foods? Uh, because, yes. <laughs> as, as most of us know, you are only allowed to call. Sparkling wine that came from the Champagne region of France, Champagne. The rest of it is just sparkling wine. Yes. What's less well known is there are different types of other food and drink that also claim what we think is a larger name, uh, saying, no, 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 this is just from this region. And you went deeply into Gruyere. And I did not know this history, and I thought it was just fascinating. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's all these types of foods um, that get these labels, like, but there's a whole consortium that has to evaluate people's applications. So all these countries, all these territories, all these regions, they try to get their foods this coveted geographical indication, like geographical indication is like one big uh, umbrella term for like, there's other little pockets like PDOs and PDIs, all these like little caveats and things but yeah specifically an example being gruyere and also a lot of cheeses by the way like gruyere cheese it's like named after a region but there were similar styles of cheese in both in in france in austria and also switzerland but like swiss Switzerland and France were the ones kind of competing for the coveted uh, geographical indication of Gruyere cheese, and it came down to, like, the Swiss cheese – what did they call it? I mean, we loosely call it the Swiss cheese mafia, but really it was just (laughs) like – it was, yeah, like the – I guess – the organization that controls the quality of cheese in Switzerland – oh, Swiss Ke- – it was the Kayser Union. That's what it was. Mm. <laughs> the, the cheese union. Um, They tried to market and tried to get people to really like Gruyere. And one of their big marketing pushes was fondue,
0: meaning – In the 1970s, yeah, yeah, in right? in the
1: 1970s. And so they really started pushing.
0: Incredibly uh, successful. Oh, yeah. I, I still – Remember fondue. I I still love fondue. Who doesn't love fondue? Oh, same.
1: We're approaching fondue season too. So, (laughs) yes, (laughs) absolutely. But the Swiss beat the French, which was surprising. Yeah, surprising. And and but France, they have their they have a ton of you know geographical indications. Germany has a lot of geographical indications. But it's a it's an interesting topic because. I mean, beyond the fact that food can become a destination around the world, it's like once you get this this geographical indication, it then means that no other country or no other region can use that label. So you've got right. like... Different whiskey, different types of whiskies in Scotland, or the mm. um Nuremberger sausage, um, the Nuremberger mm. bratwurst that are and they have to abide by very specific qualifications too, like percentages of spices, the length of the sausage in Germany, the <laughs> there's all of these high like wow. qualifications, but then it means and taking champagne into consideration. Like then, no other person can call their food or their drink or their whatever champagne.
0: And if they're not from, and and it actually it gives there's an opportunity there for the traveler. I think I was just recently in the Dijon region of uh, France, Uh uh, which is, uh, and I went as you do. I went winery hopping, and in that region, it's Burgundy wines. Every single bottle of wine comes from a very small part of a very specific vineyard. And so it, it's different to do wine tastings there because, you know, in many other parts of the world, wine is blended. You take a little bit yeah. from this one and then another one from, uh, from a vineyard on the other side of the valley here the wine is so specifically tied to the land mm-hmm. that that you feel like oh there's a real reason to be in this place tasting this wine is there any food that gives that same kind of feeling that that oh yeah i i'm so glad i visited this place to try this food
1: I- I think that's why people like when they come to Philadelphia, they want to have a cheesesteak. It's like it's one of those experiences (laughs) that are unique to the places that you're traveling to. And I really do love because then you get the families that have been in that business for generations. And it's not just the food itself, but it's like the terroir of the place is unique to that region. The traditions in which the wine is made or the food is is um you know, the food is made, Uh, those are traditional techniques that have been passed down through the generations that that type of, that level of expertise and knowledge is really hard to
0: recreate. Sure. Yeah. Well, you've been traveling and eating for many years. What were some of the most compelling foodie travel experiences you've had over the time?
1: Well, uh, I mean enamored by a lot of my experiences. Um, I think I have the most command over Germany. I used to live there and I, before the pandemic, had gone back like every single year. And just like, that's a country. I mean, every country really. But like Germany, every time I go, I'm doing something different. I'm doing something new. Mm. And I think one of the most surprising things is like Bavaria has a region to the north called Franconia. And Franconia has a 1000 year old winemaking tradition of um, I think they call it oh gosh Silvaner yes I almost said sect which is their word for champagne or bubbly wine huh. so but it's the Silvaner wine um, and it's it's just so quirky and funny because it's like you go to Bavaria and people right off the bat they think of beer which yes that's there it's a big part of their culture but like you, if you're just got your blinders on for just like the beer, you're gonna miss out on this wild wine region that they also have. Um, so Germany is like really fun. Um, Mexico.
0: Well, before all- before ahead. we leave Germany, oh yeah, go ahead. I, I never would have guessed you were gonna say Germany for foodie travel. I always find German food. Maybe I'm going to the wrong places. Uh, that uh, it gets to be a little too much the same for me. It's very can be very heavy, uh, very meat centric. What am I missing? What regions of Germany should I be going to, or what what German oh, food should I be tasting? Yeah, I mean, so yeah, it can
1: be very meat heavy in the south for sure. Uh, but it also depends on the seasons. Like I used to love hmm. the Spargel season. That's asparagus, and you talk about a culture that knows how to wield asparagus <laughs> in a lot of different ways like visit huh. germany from like march april may you'll likely find a lot of asparagus but they also have like the white asparagus and that's ah. that's delicious too um the north is really interesting because that's when you start getting into the fish like there's more mm. of the fish or the pot herring so that's the like the pickled fish um and of course there's lots of potato centric dishes i mean that i i, I it's partial to me because like i said i lived there for a little bit and i feel like i have a command of uh discussing the cuisine there a little sure. bit more than other places um but that's if, if yeah if you're looking for something that's interesting it's like go to the places where you have a lot of expectations and then divert off of that path you'll find something interesting
0: That's the key to good travel because I think we go to all types of places with expectations and they're always dashed. Yeah. You know, you always find out, okay, yeah, I knew a little bit, but now I know a lot. What were you about to say about Mexico Uh, when I cut you off? No,
1: no, no. I mean, and then Mexico, I mean, the whole country's cuisine is recognized by UNESCO as like a Gastro- like, it's in their list of gastromic, uh, att- not attractions, but destinations. Um, and that's because of the, like, the amount of, like, there's a lot of regions, of course, like as in any country, but it's also how well they've kept their pre-Hispanic Like pre-Columbian kind of like food, interesting, also intact. But then it's it's a timeline, so there's all this like pre-Hispanic cuisine. But then you start to see like, oh, here's what the Spanish like introduced um, into the country. But, you know, I haven't left the country since the beginning of the pandemic. Where My husband and I were just like not there yet in terms of our comfort level. And we went to Tucson, Arizona, which is known for its Sonoran cuisine. And the Sonoran Mm. region stretches from Mexico up into Arizona. And that's where like you can have Really authentic experiences as well. It, it was like it was very nice. They have um like I think a twenty three mile stretch of just like
0: amazing Mexican food and taco joints and so good. So when you say Sonoran cuisine, what does that mean? What is Sonoran cuisine?
1: Uh, it's subtly nuanced. Like they have their own like okay, they have their own agave spirit. There's like all these different types uh, of agave spirits. Uh, the one that we are most commonly like we know of is tequila which actually just recently got its um geographical indication in 2019 now all tequila needs to be made in the like the tequila region of (laughs) Jalisco I know I'm so excited about it but then there's other ones there's like mezcal which um I love the phrase that like What is it? All tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequila. So that's like other nuanced ones. But then Mm. there's another one that's starting to make a comeback called Bacanara. And it's like Mm. sharper, more pungent, a little potent. And it was like... No, people weren't allowed to make it for a while,
0: but now huh.
1: like people are starting to get back into the bacanara um, tradition. Why weren't they
0: allowed to make it? Was it like um, oh my goodness, what's that? It's like a uh, liquor that that drove Van Gogh crazy. They say oh what absinthe.
1: I mean, maybe not that
0: intense.
1: <laughs> mango had some other things going
0: on (laughs) yeah i think so yeah (laughs) Um, definitely
1: yeah yeah i mean but absinthe is great too and absinthe is also kind of making a comeback but um absolutely i think i'm not too specifically sure but i think it was because it was made without the same kinds of regulations as tequila and mezcal a lot of the sonoran cuisines are more known for like people that would cross the desert so it's very like portable foods or very like like they have huh. the sonoran hot dog which is really delicious um yeah it's so it was foods that could traverse a desert cuz the sonoran desert is also a uh interesting um habitat huh
0: Fascinating. Well, it's been such a delight speaking with you once again. Uh, we've been speaking with Keilani Palmisano, whose show uh, "Check Please Philadelphia" is debuting its second season in on October thirteenth. Many congratulations once again, and thank you for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. <laughs> Our next guest is Andrea Sachs. She's a favorite of ours from the Washington Post travel section. Hey, Andrea, welcome back to the Frommer Travel Show. Hello, great to be back. So I wanted to have you on because uh, you did something very, very similar to what my daughter did when she graduated from high school. And I was wondering if this type of trip still exists. When my daughter was 18... Uh, I guess she takes after her mother. She just took off for Japan. She lined up three jobs in advance through a site called Workaway and had the time of her life. She worked at a ski resort. She worked at a little Japanese inn. And you have done this pre-pandemic. In fact, you write about it in one of the most charming, fascinating stories on the Washington Post site. It's called In Morocco, A New Take on a Working Vacation. So tell us about your experience. And I really want to hear about how this type of travel has shifted post-pandemic.
2: Absolutely. First of all, Your daughter is a trendsetter and is venture (laughs) who you are, Um, that's amazing that she did that. I am twice her age, and I just did this myself. And it's a big leap into you don't know what, but it is so rewarding. So just a little bit of the backstory. I know with the pandemic, the hospitality industry lost millions and millions of workers. A lot of them have not come back. And I thought, well, I want to help out. And I know, as we all know, as we go back into the travel world, you'll see changes at hotels. Like maybe housekeeping isn't daily. Maybe the restaurant isn't serving the full length of the day. You know, little trims that they're making to accommodate for the, the lack or the missing um, labor shortage. So yeah. I saw, I went on the same site as your daughter, Workaway. It's still there. And there was another one called World Packers. And I saw that there were a lot of hospitality ones and a lot of the write-ups where the writer would say, I, you know, used to have a full staff before the pandemic and now it's just me and I'm trying to run this lodge. And I put on my little hero's cap or cape and I'm like, I'm going to come help you. I know nothing. I know a lot about hospitality as a guest, but I've never worked behind the counter and I really just wanted to help. But well, let me let me let me interject here because I think we we missed a step
0: in the story. Uh, my no, fault. No, my uh, fault for running because I was excited to get to tomorrow. Well, no. <laughs> so this type of vacation, basically, you are trading your work. For free room and board, so it's not just—it's not a straight volunteer vacation. You are getting something in return. I mean, this allowed my daughter to travel all around Japan without, you know, withdrawing all of the money that she was about to spend on college. Uh, so, so that's that's the basis of this. So it's somewhat of a volunteer uh, experience, but it's it's also the volunteers get something for free, which often allows them to travel.
2: Absolutely. And that's so important because you do, at the very minimum, get lodging. And think about if you do a two-week trip, lodging really adds up. And then some of the places, a lot are family-run, at least the ones I looked at, and they just become your family. So if they're having a family meal, they invite you to sit down. If they're going out on an excursion into the mountains or to the river or wherever, they'll invite you along. So it's such a rewarding experience beyond just doing the work exchange. So, but
0: you had trouble finding an experience when you decided to do this. Here you were gung-ho to help out the lodgings industry uh, with their labor shortage. And you went on these two websites and And what happened?
2: Oh my gosh, I didn't hear from anyone. <laughs> I was so excited. I'm like, how am I going to pick? And then I'm like, I'm not going to have any to pick from. So I sent out a ton. Well, I, the the one that first attracted me to this whole idea was there's this lodge in Talkeetna, Alaska that I made mm-hmm. at a couple years ago and they have a little bakery and they do a pie making class. And I just wanted to give back. I just wanted to be like, I had such a great weekend there looking for moose in the Northern Lights. And I just, in my head, I was like, I'm already there. She never responded. I reached out just between the two of it, just immediately um, her email, I, reached out to her. I never heard back. I asked. And the, she had, she had a, a thing up on world packers saying I need help, right? Did She was one of the ones that touched my heart because it said during the pandemic, I had a full staff and now I'm one person running from a bakery to restaurant. They have several accommodations plus like chasing the moose away. I'm like, I'm going to help you. But I, I don't think some of them I don't know if they use World Packers a lot because it shows you a percentage of the response rate and she didn't have any percentage. So and huh. I messaged the staff at, I think it was WorkAway, and they said that I should just try elsewhere. You know, she looks at her email. That's great. But if not, I should probably just start applying to other places. Right. So I tried for a place in British Columbia and the woman was lovely And my job would be picking berries and making jam (laughs) (laughs) for Grizzlies. It sounded so nice, but my timing was off. And then I was looking toward the end of the summer season, and I think they could really make do with what they had on on their staff. So she said, try again. This isn't a no, but just the timing is off. I did get accepted at a place in Turkey, but it was really remote. and And there was a lot about childcare, and I felt like I might end up as a nanny. So huh. slightly declined that. I felt like Goldilocks. Like, which bed is gonna work for me? And then uh, I tried a place in Austria and it was the wrong season. I tried a sailboat. Huh. Uh a tourist sailboat, I think it was in England. And he said he didn't I was like, I'll take tickets, I'll swab your deck. And so like, <laughs> but I just never felt this. I probably tried about a dozen and I just wasn't getting they were responding but it just wasn't, I wasn't making a match. So as soon as, as you know, you're like, I'm going to just shout this. I'm going to give it some time. I heard back from a hostel in Morocco in Fez, and I heard back from an inn in Maine and both of them Mm. affected me. Wow.
0: And so you ended up in Morocco, in my favorite part of Morocco. What a wondrous place Fez is.
2: How long were you there? I signed up for two weeks. So with World Packers, they tell you what the minimum is, minimum, maximum amount of time that the host would like you to volunteer for. And hers was two weeks. And I left a little early. It was really slow. And I just felt like I needed to get back to work. I was starting to feel a little guilty. So I ended up uh-huh. working there for ten days.
0: And what did you do? What what did your work consist of? And and how you know, I think probably a lot of listeners right now are thinking, I don't want to work on vacation. Uh, how how
2: much toil was it? It was minimal toil. Like, toil is me being overly dramatic. It was so much fun. So I helped in the morning with breakfast, and it was a traditional Moroccan breakfast. So I learned how to make mint tea. I learned how they make eggs in the tagine pottery. I learned how to climb up and down a million steps with trays and not spill anything. And a lot of the guests spoke English. So the housekeeper, Amina, she was the one staff person. She'd just been there for a couple months and she only spoke Arabic. So I, they really relied on me to speak with the guests and ask if they needed anything. And so I would help prepare breakfast. I got my own apron, climb up to the terrace, deliver breakfast, clear plates. And then by 10 30, 11, I was eating my own breakfast and then I was free Wow! a mm-hmm. And then I would come back and I would help check in guests, which again was minimal. Like I would show them to their room. I would show them the terrace. I'd tell them about breakfast. I'd answer any questions about restaurants. Sometimes I would help them go through the Medina, which you know is so confusing. To find oh, Yeah. PM or to show them where the cabs pick up. Like, I actually felt really useful. <laughs> and they're like, how long have you been? there?" I'm like, 48 hours, how am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love how you start the article because you
0: have two very harassed uh, people coming in because somebody insisted on carrying their bags. I guess uh, when you go to the Medina of Fez, it's such an ancient place that there aren't really, in most parts of it, from what I remember, there isn't room for cars. So if you're staying in the Medina, usually you have to park nearby. If you get dropped off in a taxi, they, they drop you off, and then you have to go into what is really the most complex maze of streets. And so people make a living you know, finding tourists and helping them to their hotels. And and that was what happened within your first 48 hours,
2: right? Absolutely. And I had been there. I could empathize with these two women from Spain because a cab, so the, the hostel or the host tells you how to get there. And it seems to make sense until you're actually in the middle of it. So you pick up a cab, look for a little red cab. Then you have to kind of fight over how much you're supposed to pay. Is it 20 Durham? Is it 10? which is like a dollar or two. So I'm like, take it all. And then they drop you off in this dusty parking lot and you don't see a Medina because it's down a hill and you know, it's, it's, it's like a Warren a maze and they just drop you off in this dusty parking lot. And then there are all these people with wagons and they throw your luggage in and you tell them where you're going. But if you don't know what's going, they just, they, they do, they do before they just throw the bags in basically. Like right. whether you tell them or not, they'll just do it. And then you sort it out in the end. I knew. And so I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm just going to carry my own. These women didn't realize that. And they thought maybe it was part of the hostel service or right. usually it's their son who does it, but he wasn't there. And so they were just shocked. And the guy wanted his money and they did not want to pay him because they hadn't hired his service. And so I just went into my bag and I gave him 10 Durham and sent him away and explained to the women just what had happened. And so it was all resolved. And that was in my first three minutes.
0: Wow. (laughs) Now, I think a lot of people listening to this may think, okay, this sounds great for travelers, but aren't these volunteers taking away jobs? from people who might otherwise be in these industries. Uh, is there an official line on what WorkAway and World Packers says
2: about this? I know that in some states, cities, counties, jurisdictions, you are paid because that's what the law says. If there are employment laws, so the Alaska one, you do get paid. So it yeah. doesn't fully answer that question. I. Don't think that for ones that have a really tight budget, they'd be able to support a full-time staffer. So they put this in, and especially for places with seasonal occupancy. So for, I was there during the really slow period, which is the hot months in Morocco. And so she couldn't afford to have more full-time staff members, but she was hoping to add to her staff come December when it got busy again. So I was like a plug-in. I was just there, a Band-Aid, to help. And so... I think the others, like the one in Maine that I looked at, they actually would pay me. And I, huh. felt I would not feel comfortable getting paid because I really want to volunteer. So I would maybe either donate it back or donate it to the community. Right. Yeah. Well, and I guess, them. I
0: mean... Mm-hmm. I think this may circle back to the fact that hotels are looking to hire, but a lot of them are finding that they can't, that people don't want this type of work permanently.
2: Absolutely. A lot of people left and those jobs are still available and they don't want to go back. They want to work from home. As you know, the the hospitality industry, you need to be... In that hot in that hotel helping guests, you need one on one face time, and if you have dependents or children at home, that's probably not the ideal scenario for you. So they've left the industry,
0: yeah, yeah. Now, from this trip, another article blossomed, which was a fascinating one. I thought it was. On the fact that often you go places, and this happened to me when I was in Jerusalem many years ago, I I checked into this, uh, it was actually a a Christian guest house, Uh, not that I'm religious, but it was the cheapest place to stay, it was very historic, and they had this open air lobby, and this beautiful cat kind of strolled through as I was checking in, and I said to the person behind the uh, desk, oh, what a beautiful cat, what's its name? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, well, I I don't know, it doesn't have a name. (laughs) And then, you know, as soon as I went out into the streets of Jerusalem, I realized, oh, my goodness, there are just hundreds of cats strolling all over the city. I, I actually sat at a bar next to a volunteer veterinarian. I think she's a veterinarian, but then she volunteers her extra time with street cats. And she told me that they came because there had been a mouse problem in Jerusalem when the British colonized it. And they brought all the cats. And since the cats had no natural predator, they just exploded in number. And that's the case in many places around the world. You go and you see both cats and dogs, and sometimes they look like they're suffering. And so you wrote a very helpful piece on what you should do when you see one of these animals or 10 of them Mm -hmm. and you want to help. Uh, So what's the basic thing you need to, to know about this situation?
2: The first would be, and I think you have to look at the situation in a different cultural lens because we're so used to pampering our pets. They are a part of our family members. They come indoors. They have their own beds. A lot of animals around the world live outside. And we remember they used to be wild. Cats are still pretty wild and independent. So you see a lot of street animals and you have to assess whether they are in need and whether they're part of the community. So a lot of communities around the world Um, maybe, I don't know about Jerusalem, but I know for sure in Istanbul, there's even a documentary about how they love their cats and they take Hmm. care of their cats and they might not, they don't bring them indoors, but they make sure that they're fed and cared for. And so you have to first see if they are okay and then you have to make sure that you don't offend the community. And so you don't just grab the dog and run off with it and be like, I'm saving the dog. You need to kind of write to the community and see if there are caretakers. And you'll notice a lot, especially this happened in Morocco and Fez, you see little bowls all over the place. And by yeah. the way, they're throwing them bone. They eat better than I do. They eat the scraps. They, they feed them the meat and the bones and whatever else is out there. But then they do look mangy. And so the cats that were by my hostel, I had them all in my lap and I bought them food. And I broke so many rules. And that's why I wrote the article because I did a lot of things that I couldn't have. (laughs) First of all, you don't feed them in front of your hotel because they will quickly think that that is their buffet station and will come back. And after I've left, the hotel owner or the guests might find it a nuisance. And if they call animal control, then you made their lives worse than before you showed up. So, you have to think about that. So, if you feed them, feed them off site, feed them um, food that dogs and cats eat. And so, avoid the foods that would be dangerous to dogs. For example, as we know, chocolate, grapes, avocado, cat. Right. Just in the movies, they like, or cartoons, they like bowls of milk. Just feed them fresh water, things of that sort. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and you,
0: you posted to. to um social media, a picture of yourself petting these kittens, to and then you immediately got responses, I think, with a single word
2: on them, which was ringworm. Uh, I sent a picture I, to a friend, and she's like, uh, you know, you can pick up ringworm from them, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, kittens, and I delicately put them down, and then I showered and scrubbed my clothes, <laughs> and I went overboard, though, so I. it's very, a lot of these diseases, they just wash off. You won't pick up fleas and ringworm, the biggest threat obviously is rabies. I mean, that's a serious, serious danger. It's fatal. And you have to be really careful. If you see an animal disoriented, looks like it's choking, very aggressive. And if you get bitten, it's very serious and you need medical attention. And Right. I had no idea until I read your article that 59,000 people die every year of rabies. Wow. Right. And the World Health Organization, CDC, have a list of countries that are not rabies-free where it's high risk. And so if you go to those places, you have to be high you know, high alert. I think Morocco might be one of them. So I was still like, I just led by my heart and I just wanted to cuddle all of them. And then I learned my lesson, but you can still help. That's the main thing. You can still help as long as you're safe about it and smart. Right. And I think you you give some good advice about Maybe bringing
0: supplies Mm -hmm. because in many of these communities, as I discussed when I just happened, as I learned when I just happened to sit next to this uh, veterinarian at the bar at a restaurant in Jerusalem, uh, they often will have local organizations that help the dogs and cats. And and you can help them by bringing supplies that may be very expensive in their countries, but less expensive
2: in the US. Absolutely. So a little search research goes a long way. So before you go to your destination, see what the local shelters or charities or rescue operations are, and then email them and just say, I'm coming into town for however long. Is there anything that I can bring you? Is there anything I can do to help? And I'm hoping to write about this next, because actually every time I travel, I volunteered an animal shelter. So I just did it in Barcelona. Um, I've done it in Mexico and you just walk the dogs or you sit with the cats or you help. In Barcelona, they had a big pile of leashes and collars and we just sorted them out. So any little bit of help that you can do, they're just so appreciative. But especially as you said, the supplies and in these countries that things are so expensive. And for us, you know, we buy like a new collar, oh, there's a studded one that like Fluffy needs, and so we do away with the other one. Just look for your closet, and maybe there's some good supplies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a wonderful article, uh, and it's always wonderful talking with you, thank Andrea. You. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Fromers Travel Show. We thank you so much for listening, and to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. We'll see you next week. Okay.